0: Hello, hello, this is My Apologies, and my name is Stephen Cram. An apology doesn't just mean saying that you're sorry. An apology can also mean giving a reason for something that you believe. For example, if I ask you, why do you believe that the moon landing was fake? I'm asking for an apology. On this channel, we will examine various apologies for living a life of faith and virtue. And if I say something that offends you, my apologies. Today we'll be talking about The Matrix and materialism. Not the kind of materialism that Madonna sang about, though. Although, if you need to pause this and listen to the song Material Girl, I can't say that I would blame you. It's been stuck in my head for days. But anyway, I'm excited to get started. Welcome to My Apologies. Today, we will be in Chapter 4 of Mere Christianity, Book Number 1, moving right along. As I mentioned in the intro, we'll look at what Lewis has to say about materialism versus religion. And we'll end up with the question, kind of these transcendental questions around, can we really know anything about why we exist? About why we're here in the first place? Why do humans exist? Why does the world exist? Those kinds of questions. So again, materialism versus religion, and then these transcendental questions. Lewis begins chapter 4 by giving a quick overview of what he's established in the book so far, and what we've talked about in the previous episodes. These ideas of a moral law that is within us, and that tells us what we ought to be doing. He explains that this law is experienced by all humans, but it's not something that we've invented, and yet we know we ought to obey it. After this summary, he says, and this is Lewis, I now want to consider what this tells us about the universe we live in. Ever since men were able to think, they have been wondering what this universe really is and how it came to be there. And very roughly, two views have been held. First, there is what is called the materialist view. People who take that view think that matter and space just happen to exist, and have always existed. Nobody quite knows why, and that the matter, behaving in certain fixed ways, has just happened by a sort of fluke to produce creatures like ourselves, who are able to think. By one chance in a thousand, something hit our sun and made it produce the planets. And by another thousandth chance, the chemicals necessary for life and the right temperature occurred on one of these planets. And so some of the matter on this earth came alive. And then by a very long series of chances, the living creatures developed into things like us. The other view is the religious view. According to it, what is, beyond, what is behind the universe is more like a mind than it is like anything else we know. That is to say, it is conscious, and it has purposes, and prefers one thing to another. And on this view, it made the universe, partly for purposes we do not know, but partly, at any rate, in order to produce creatures like itself. I mean, like itself to the extent of having minds. Please do not think that one of these views was held a long time ago, and that the other has gradually taken its place. Wherever there have been thinking men, both views turn up. So in this passage, Lewis highlights the two main views that everyone who has ever existed has held in regards to the reason why the world exists or where this all came from. The first he lists is materialism, which is to say the belief that everything you see simply is. There isn't really anything beyond it. There's no spiritual world. There's no soul inside any of us. There is no transcendental truth. There's nothing behind it all to explain why it exists or even how it got there. Material just exists. It's like the basic unit of a reality. As a result, all life that we know of, everything that has ever happened, arose from mere chance, where stardust that has developed over time and somehow became sentient living creatures. There is no such thing, as I said, of any kind of soul or any kind of purpose beyond what exists plainly in the material world. So that's kind of an overview of materialism broadly. The other worldview that he presents is religion. He says everyone who isn't a materialist throughout all of history would fall into this religious category. And this includes people who would say something like a mind, a designer perhaps, exists beyond the material world and it is the thing responsible for the material world. This designer created the natural world, all matter that we know of, and could also be responsible for things like spirits or the soul within us or, for our purposes, the moral law, morality. And these ideas of transcendent truths like goodness, beauty, things that can't be scientifically proven or shown materially, but we still seem to believe exist. This designer, call it he, she, it, they, if there's more than one, depending on what you believe. This designer made it all and has thoughts about it, intentions about it. And this is why you can actually derive answers to the question of why do we exist or how did we come to be? because we believe that there's something beyond the material world that can actually provide an answer to those questions. Now, Lewis is distilling all of humanity into these two categories of materialist and religious, and hundreds, maybe even thousands of flavors of these beliefs exist, right? So like for religion, for example, You have Christians, Jews, Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, people who worship Zeus, I guess like the ancient Greeks, you know, all kind, even deists, like people always talk about the Enlightenment era. So even the founding fathers of America, some of them were deists, meaning that they believed in a God that created everything. But he kind of has stepped back from history and he isn't really hands on with people. He kind of just lets things play out as they will that would also be an example of someone in the religious category. They're not materialists. They believe in a God who is outside of the material world, who's created everything. So those are lots of different flavors. I think we would all agree that all of those different beliefs have different nuances, different beliefs. Some of them are polytheists, which would be in the category of people who think that they are responsible for the world, right? So like if you worship Zeus, you have Athena. I don't know. I'm getting most of my mythology from the movie Hercules from Disney, to be honest. But the example still stands. There's lots of different ways you can be in the religion category. And similarly, there are lots of ways you could be in the materialist category. And of course, It kind of makes sense that there would be two camps because they revolve around, essentially, do you believe that there is a God or not? Kind of like if you said there are two types of people, those who believe in the tooth fairy and those who don't. That's kind of what we're talking about. All of humanity has explained the existence of the world in these two broad ways. Just like all kids who experience... Their teeth being turned into coins underneath their pillows at night have explained it in two ways. You have the people who explain it via the tooth fairy and the people that explain it via parents. It's kind of a dichotomy that exists naturally because of the nature of the question being asked. Before we go further, I think it's kind of helpful to point out that there are thoughtful people in both categories right you have people who are very intellectual who have thought it through and have landed on believing that materialism is the best way to view the world the most accurate way to view the world and similarly you have very thoughtful people who have the exact opposite view having searched it out and looked into it they believe that the religious view is the most rational way to view the world at the same time you have relatively thoughtless people in both of these camps you have people that just by default, don't believe in a God or don't want to believe in a God, and so they're materialists. Or people who have just been raised in church their whole life don't really care much, but they fall on the religious view, just not because they've thought it through, but because it was what they've always believed, maybe. So you have both thoughtful people, really intentional, thoughtful, caring, scientific even people in both categories, and those who don't really care in both categories. It really isn't the case that all of the thoughtful, intelligent people are in one camp, and all of the really unintelligent people who don't really who aren't reasonable, are in the other camp. To draw this out even further, right now, it feels like kind of the spirit of the age is that all intelligent people are materialists, and all the foolish backward people are religious. But if you were to wind the clock back 700 years ago, you would find that all the scientists and all the people who were intellectuals, they were all the religious people. And those who were materialists were kind of the outcasts, those who were seen as being the weirdos. It's to this end that Lewis says that bit at the end about, please do not think that one of these views was held a long time ago and that the other has gradually taken its place. Materialism isn't a new replacement for religion. You see it as far back as 460 BC, where you have a philosopher named Democritus, such a classic Greek sounding name. Uh, He was a philosopher or a professional thinker, you could say. And he was one of the OG materialists in the Greek world. And mind you, this is 460 BC. So this is almost 500 years before Christ was around. So this is a long, 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 long time ago. He was what's called an atomist, meaning that it's where it's kind of like where we get the, the word atom from. And it's the idea that there are two types of things that exist. These baseline units of reality called atoms and void, which would be the spaces in between. Everything that exists can be distilled down into these two things, atoms and void. So that doesn't really leave room for transcendental gods or truths like goodness or beauty to tangibly exist. Everything has to be either made up of atoms or the space in between. Democritus may have believed in the Greek gods or something like them. It's unclear in his writings. But we know that they would have had to have fit into this materialist worldview, meaning that they wouldn't have been the first cause of all the material world. They would have had to fit into the material world as material beings made up of atoms. So it's not really clear exactly how he would have believed this. He didn't write extensively about it, or if he did, we don't have those writings. But what it's fair to say is that he fits into the materialist camp. Following in his footsteps, we have another Greek named Epicurus. He founded a whole school of thought called Epicureanism, which today has become synonymous with hedonism or the idea of you need to pursue your own pleasure above all else. And this kind of all stems from this materialist worldview where there isn't anything but atoms. There isn't anything but raw matter around us. And so the most meaningful end you could ever pursue is your own pleasure. And so that's why Epicureanism kind of has become synonymous with hedonism. And then outside of the Greek world, you have the Bible, which I know it's a religious text. And if you're listening, you probably have thoughts about it. You may believe it. You may not. But aside from it being a religious text, it also is a fair documentation of what people in that culture thought at that time. So you have in Psalm 14, the psalmist, the, the Hebrew songwriter who's writing this psalm says the words, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And so you see, like, obviously from his point of view, there are people who don't believe in a God who would be under the category of materialists, and he's calling them fools. And you may agree, you may disagree, but the very least what we can take from this is when this psalm was being written, the author knew people who would say, there is no God, and lived their lives accordingly. So like Lewis says, this idea of materialism goes way back. And I think we also just know from our experience of religion that religion goes back as well. And... As much as we're inclined to think in modern times that materialism has taken over and it will never swing back to religion being the dominant worldview, it has been both of these two worldviews kind of playing tug-of-war throughout all of history. All right, so we've got materialism and we've got religion. So how can we start to determine which one might be the correct one? It's pretty challenging. You might be tempted to think that there's some kind of scientific process by which we could discern which of these seems more reasonable. But Lewis says... You cannot find out which view is the right one by science in the ordinary sense. Science works by experiments. It watches how things behave. Every scientific statement in the long run, however complicated it looks, really means something like, quote, I pointed the telescope to such and such part of the sky at 2.20am on January 15th and saw so and so. Or, quote, I put some of this stuff in a pot and heated it to such and such a temperature and it did so and so. Do not think I am saying anything against science. I am only saying what its job is. And the more scientific a man is, the more, I believe, he would agree with me that this is the job of science. And a very useful and necessary job it is, too. But why anything comes to be there at all, and whether there is anything behind the things science observes, something of a different kind, this is not a scientific question. If there is something behind all of this, then either it will have to remain altogether unknown to men or else make itself known, in some different way. The statement that there is any such thing, and the statement that there is no such thing, are neither of them statements that science can make. And real scientists usually do not make them. It is usually the journalists and popular novelists who have picked up a few odds and ends of half-baked science from textbooks who go in for them. After all, it is really a matter of common sense. Supposing science ever became complete, so that we knew every single thing in the whole universe... Is it not plain that the question, why is there a universe, why does it go on as it does, or has it any meaning, would remain just as they were? So Lewis here is saying, you may be tempted to try to decide between materialism and religion by using science. But he explains that this will always fall short, and that's because science is for the realm of physics, not metaphysics. And I'll explain. Physics, if you're anything like me generally means a class you maybe took in high school or if you graduate with like engineering or something, a class where you're like measuring speed and direction and velocity. For me, it was a class where I kind of sat in the back and drew stick figures on my homework and slid by with a B probably, I don't remember. But uh, classically, physics isn't a class like this. Physics is just the study of matter, the material world, everything that science and materialism concerns itself with. When you hear physics think physical the physical world that's what science is in the business of physics metaphysics means after or beyond physics beyond the physical world meta is a prefix meaning after or beyond this is an area of philosophy it deals with abstract concepts beyond the physical world like like a person having being or how we can know things, what the substance of a thing might be, the cause of things. Metaphysics asks questions like, why is there a universe? Something that can't be measured by science. Or why are we here? It's these purpose kinds of questions. So science can't answer these. It's, it can only exist in the realm of physics, not metaphysics. I've got a fun illustration for this that I've been thinking about a lot lately, actually. There's this new worldview that's rising up made popular, I think, by Elon Musk. You, you may have heard of him. He, it's called simulation theory, which basically suggests that we are all characters in a super advanced video game or a simulation. Think like the movie The Matrix, where all of humanity is existing in this computerized world made up of ones and zeros, binary code, but what they see around them is what they perceive as the real world. And imagine if this is true for us. Everything around us is just existing in a program. You can drive cars, you can get married, have kids, live and die, all within this video game, this simulation of reality as you know it. If this is truly the world that you live in, think about it for a minute. Think about what you did yesterday and all that being part of a simulation. Think about what you're planning on doing tomorrow. And then kind of zoom out from just your own little world. Can you tell me anything about the world outside of this video game? So if, if everything you did yesterday, everything that you're going to do tomorrow, everything that you've ever done and ever planned to do exists within a simulated world, can you tell me who created that simulation? Or can you tell me what kind of program that simulation exists on? Is it some kind of like advanced Xbox or is it a computer simulation? No, we, we exist in the simulation. You don't have the information Because all that you can see is within the simulation, you can't tell me anything about what exists outside of that simulation, can you? In the movie The Matrix, for example, Neo, the main character, and and all the characters who end up fighting the bad guys, they couldn't tell you anything about the simulation. They didn't know that they existed in a simulation until someone pulled them out of it. Once you're outside of it, then you can look back on it. You have to have someone giving you knowledge or pulling you outside of the simulation in order for you to be able to tell more transcendental truths about that realm which you were living in. In the same way, as you look at your life, if it was a simulation, you would have to either be removed from that simulation or you would have to have some kind of hint left for you by the person or people who programmed the game. If you can't tell by now, I'm a little bit of a nerd, and thinking about abstract concepts like this really just entertain me a ton. But hopefully that may- has made sense for you so far. We'll go a step further and look back at what Lewis has said about the world around us. Remember, we're trying to answer the question, if basically, if science can't tell us whether or not the world is materialist or religious, how can we perhaps find the truth? He writes, the position of the question then is like this. We want to know whether the universe simply happens to be what it is for no reason, or whether there is a power behind it that makes it what it is. Since that power, if it exists, would not be one of the observed facts, but a reality which makes them, no more observation of the facts can find it. This is what I was talking about with, because the reality around us is the facts that we can see, we can't tell anything about the facts outside of it. He continues. There is only one case in which we can know whether there is anything more, namely our own case, our own experience. And in this one case, we find there is. Or put it the other way around, if there was a controlling power outside the universe, it could not show itself to us as one of the facts inside the universe. It couldn't be something. If if there was a creator of the simulation, you wouldn't meet, expect to meet him inside the simulation. If there is a god outside the world, you wouldn't expect to be able to observe him by scientific means. Back to Lewis, if there was a controlling power outside the universe, it could not show itself to us as one of the facts inside the universe. No more than the architect of a house could actually be a wall or a staircase or a fireplace in that house. The only way in which we could expect it to show itself would be inside ourselves as an influence or a command trying to get us to behave a certain way. And that is just what we do find inside ourselves. So what's he saying? Let's go back to our simulation example. Imagine that the video game you find yourself in, the simulation, the matrix that you're in, is Mario World, and you're Mario. You find yourself in this wonderful world of painted landscapes and toadstools with eyeballs that talk to you and turtles that you have to stomp on because if you touch them, you die for whatever reason. You, as Mario could choose to stay home and just chill with your brother Luigi. You could eat good food, you could party, you could train your pet Yoshi, just hang out, live a very relaxed life. But for some reason, Mario, you feel compelled to go save Princess Peach. Mario could look within himself at the fact that he seems programmed to feel like he ought to go save the princess and wonder, where does this come from? Why do I feel that I ought to do this? This is sort of like what Lewis is talking about. He also notes that if you were observing from the outside, if you were just looking at Mario as a as the player of the game or as maybe his brother Luigi within the game, you wouldn't be able to tell what he was feeling inside. You wouldn't be able to identify this ought, this compulsion to go save the princess. You would just see his actions and you could you couldn't tell from that what he was, whether or not he was being compelled by his programming or his conscience to do that. You can't see his conscience as an outside observer. You can't read in a simulation the code that is compelling him to do what he feels he ought to do. This requires self-examination. This is what Luce means when he says that there is only one case in which we can know whether there is anything more, and that is in our own case. For us in the real world, this is what we've been talking about over the past few episodes, what he would call the moral law. Lewis has argued that we do find ourselves experiencing a world like Mario's world, one in which there is some kind of compulsion, an ought that we feel, and that this might be a hint that there is a programmer, a designer, someone who put that within us. So a couple quick objections you might be thinking. First, if you find yourself thinking, yeah, but this whole moral law thing, it could just be the result of evolution over time. If you're feeling this tension, I invite you to check out episode 4 again, where we covered this extensively, or you could read chapter 2 of Mere Christianity. The second objection you might be thinking is, but this is just my experience. I can admit that when I look at my life, I feel like I ought to do this thing and I ought not do this thing, and it doesn't always quite line up with what would be convenient for me, but I I feel this guilt almost, right? So is this the moral law? Is this what's coming from God? And is this just my experience? Why would I think that other people are experiencing it too? Well, that's totally a great question, and Lewis addresses this near the end of the chapter. He uses the analogy of a mailman, which I think is really fun. He says, Suppose someone asked me, when I see a man in a blue uniform going down the street leaving little paper packets at each house, why I suppose they contain letters? I should reply, because whenever he leaves a similar little packet for me, I find that mine does contain a letter. And then if he objected, but you've never seen all those letters which you think other people are getting in all those other packets that he sees people receiving, I should say, of course not, and I shouldn't expect to, because they're not addressed to me. I'm explaining the packets I'm not allowed to open by the ones I am allowed to open. It is the same about this question. The only packet I am allowed to open is man. When I do, especially when I open the particular man called myself, I find that I do not exist on my own that I am under a law, that somebody or something wants me to behave in a certain way. I do not, of course, think that if I got inside a stone or a tree, I should find exactly the same thing, just as I do not think all the other people in the street get the same letters as I do. I should expect, for instance, to find that the stone has to obey the law of gravity, that whereas the sender of the letters merely tells me to obey the law of my human nature, he compels the stone to obey the laws of its stony nature. But I should expect to find that there was, so to speak, a sender of the letters in both cases, a power beyond the facts, a director, a guide. So if you're observing a moral law acting upon your conscience personally, the feeling that you ought to behave a certain way, you're opening the letter that's being sent to you, the instructions given to you by some kind of director. You don't need to conclude that everyone's getting the exact same directions, the exact same letter at the exact same time. But it does seem reasonable to believe that if you're receiving a letter and other people say they're receiving letters, that there is a sender of these letters, a God. And Lewis is very clear in this chapter that he hasn't really argued for the Christian God yet specifically. He'll get to that, but that's not where we've landed. He's not trying to rush into things. He's not not trying to rush to prove Christianity just yet. But at this point, he argues that between the materialist worldview and the religious worldview, based on the idea of a moral law and what we see in the world around us, religion seems to be the one of these two that best represents our experience as humans. Now, as we wrap up, I've had a lot of fun talking about simulation theory. I just want to really quickly say, I know there are some people that see it as a legit pseudo-religion. They kind of replace a religious worldview or a, or a strictly materialist worldview with this idea of simulation theory. Frankly, personally, I think it falls short of a religion, and I think it actually is really a materialist view. And that's because it explains where our world, our world comes from, but that explanation is just another material world. Like our world is a simulation created by another world, which is a simulation, which is created by another world, maybe, which is a simulation. It just kind of kicks the can down the road and you end up with materialism unless at the end of all those simulations, you have a God, which is also a possibility. But I don't think that's the direction people tend to go in. So I'm not a proponent of simulation theory. I just think it's a really useful and fun thought experiment. The YouTube channel Truth Unites, created by Gavin Ortland, has a really interesting discussion on simulation theory. I know I just barely tapped into it as an example, but if you want to learn more about it, I'll leave a link in the show notes. Definitely, 10 out of 10, suggest listening to it. It was awesome. All right, so to wrap up today, we looked at the two primary categories of how people explain the world, materialism and religion. We saw that both have existed throughout history, from ancient Greece to the Hebrew Bible, and throughout history, they've fought for supremacy, both these ideas, back and forth. But sometimes one is stronger than the other, and then they flip. Finally, we talked about the idea of living in the matrix, or a video game simulation, this simulation theory. And we discussed how this can help us identify what sort of reality we live in, a materialist one or a religious one. If you enjoyed this episode and you haven't subscribed yet, please do. Share this episode with a friend who might enjoy it and leave a five-star review. It really helps us get the word out to people who would like this content. If you want to reach out to me, I'd love to hear from you. You can either join my Locals page, link in the show notes, or hit me up on Twitter. Or I guess it's X now. I don't know what they're calling it. I know Elon's changed it, but uh, you can find it, me at, at @ApologiesPod. Until next time, my name is Stephen Cram, and this has been my apologies.